just before Dr. King was killed, uh, the night before he went to Memphis, we were talking about what do we do? What's the next phase of the movement? And he says, we've got to get the energy and vitality that we have in the streets into politics. Mm. And that was the last word I heard from him before he went to Memphis. And so, and Harry Belafonte was in that meeting with John Conyers of Michigan and um, Dick Hatcher of, uh, of Gary, Indiana. And so when, when, when he was killed, uh, everybody turned on me and said, how are we going to get people into politics? And I was really trying to, I saw myself as an organizer that I could run two or three campaigns and nobody wanted to run because see, they, they were killing people <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it wasn't easy. And, and Harry Belafonte all of a sudden said, well, looks like Andy's running for Congress. I said, me? No, not me. Said, Ain't nobody else. So, <laughs> yeah. so I ended up running. And that was one of the criteria that I had, that everything I did in the movement, nobody else wanted to do. Mm. Nobody else wanted to go talk to the white folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, it was much easier going to jail. <laughs> See, uh, uh, and, uh, or facing fire hoses and dogs uh, for me. Uh, but the stuff that wasn't on television and that was happening behind the scenes was really where a movement uh, is made or broken. And so that, that put me in to running for Congress. I lost the first time. Uh, but because I listened to the experts, but every two years and the political consultants, political consultants, okay, and they put a lot of money in television. Well, the second time we put no money in television, we put about four thousand dollars in television, but we put it all into organizing block by block, into setting up carpools, uh, church buses. Um, we had to get put it all on election day. And we only had one election day. And it poured down rain from 3 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> and I said, oh, Lord, why you do this to me? <laughs> but the people came through. We had a 74% black turnout. Now, I was thinking I had to get 20% of the white vote. I only got 14% of the white vote. But what made the difference was I needed 20% of the white vote if I got 60% of the black vote turnout. But when 74% turned out, I didn't need, but uh, 14% gave me a good, comfortable lead. And so that's how I got into politics. And Congress was just like, as I said, my church. And uh, I spoke to everybody. I made friends with everybody. Uh, and um, I, I crossed the lines. <laughs> um, 
For instance, everybody in my, all of my northern friends wanted to uh, do away with peanut subsidies. Well, in my little church in, down in South Georgia, the peanut subsidy was the only way they survived. See, and they had a peanut allotment every year that allowed them to send their kids away to school, or this, that, and the other. So my liberal Democratic friends, you know, were surprised when I got up and spoke for the peanut subsidy. But what I said was, I said, you know, I said, I know you don't want peanut subsidies, but my members, <laughs> uh, if they didn't have the peanut subsidy, they'd have to pack up everybody and send them up here to New York and New Jersey to get on welfare. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I think you're a lot better off, you know, seeing, let them, letting us have the peanut subsidy. And we got the peanut subsidy. <laughs> so, so it was, um, it, it was interesting and challenging until Jimmy Carter decided he was going to run for president. And I didn't really think he had a chance. Uh, but he was a good guy, and he had he got a he got an honorary degree from Morehouse, and was Morehouse commencement speaker. And he started his speech saying, "I expect to be the first Morehouse man to be president of the United States." <laughs> he said, "But I assure you, I won't be the last." Well, everybody jumped up and clapped. <laughs> yeah, Ooh, that's great. That's great. And, uh, but Dr. Gloucester had written a citation that had done excellent research on all the things he had done quietly as governor. I mean, little things that didn't get any publicity, like they're now trying to stop us from voting. He deputized every high school principal as a registered voter, and nobody could graduate from high school in unless Georgia they voted. unless they were a registered voter. See, and it, and it never got in a newspaper, but he he stood up for voting. See, uh, there were no black folks' pictures in the state capitol. He got a committee together and said, you all decide how to integrate these pictures in the Capitol. And he just he just went out of his way to do the right thing. And uh, so when he decided that he was going to run for president, nobody in the Black, Black Caucus wanted to meet with him. See, and I had to insist, and I got Barbara Jordan to... That, they were all afraid of her. <laughs> and I said, we, we need to meet with all of the candidates. And just because my governor is from Georgia. But when he got in the room with uh, 19 members of the Black Caucus, he was the only one that got in and disagreed with them on stuff. Mm. And um, they asked him how many blacks would he appoint. And he said, I don't know. <laughs> they asked him how many black people he had on his staff. I don't know. And so Charlie Rangel would say, well, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, wait a minute, Charlie. And I went to the door and I got uh, Senator Ben Brown. And I said, Ben, how many black folk do you all have on the staff now? 
And now every other liberal Democrat that had been in there had one black staffer except the most liberal candidate, and he was looking for one. And they asked Ben how many blacks we had on the Carter staff, campaign staff. And he said, well, we just have 27. He said, but we're going to be hiring some more, so we'll probably be up to 35 or 40 before long. And they, they were shocked. They had never seen a campaign that was run by black people before. And they said, what are they doing? Well, what do you do in a campaign? They knock on doors. They raise money. Uh, we had a, a brilliant young guy uh, from Howard, and uh, he's now the dean of law school in Berkeley. Uh, he was on the issues campaign. We had black women with Ph.D. degrees who were studying the the, the book of political appointments, and they were picking out the ones that had budgets. <laughs> and so we didn't want the symbolic appointments. We wanted appointments of people who control budgets and could get money to poor folks. So it was probably the best campaign that I've run into before since, and he got elected. And then he wanted me to go to the UN. And I didn't want to go only because... I wanted to stay in the Congress. And I knew it would be controversial. And he said, I need you to go because I want to make human rights the main emphasis of our foreign policy. And he said, we don't have a good record in human rights, but since you were with Martin Luther King, you would give us some credibility that we need. And I told him that I probably wouldn't get along with the State Department. I didn't know how long I could last. And he, he said, but I, I still need you to go. And so uh, I went, and we were able to um, do a, well, we were able to gain respect for the rest of the world. Uh, we, uh, we negotiated a treaty with Panama. Uh, on the Panama Canal. We got uh, Israel and Egypt together on Camp David. Uh, I went to Africa. Uh, he asked me, gave me a note, say, go to Africa and ask African leaders, as many as you can, what they expect of this administration. Well, everybody expected me to go to the black leaders, and I did. And they wanted the United States to help them to end the fighting and to stand behind one man, one vote. Well, Carter had said that in his campaign, so that was easy to sell. But um, I also had to go talk to the South Africans. <laughs> and see, the State Department didn't want me to talk to the white South Africans. They just wanted me to talk to black South Africans. Well, I had been to... Uh, South Africa, maybe three or four times before I was ambassador. I went with Arthur Ashe uh, to a tennis match in 1974. And uh, so I, I said, I, I guess I better go see some of these white folks. <laughs> and I, I say this because it was the most interesting 
20-minute conversation I've ha- I had at the U.N. Because I said, who's the meanest son of a bitch you got to deal with here? <laughs> <laughs> and they said, P.W. Bolter. I said, well, that's the one I need to talk to. Well, he won't see you. He's not going to talk to you. And I said, well, you have a phone number for him. So I called him up. And he said, you come alone? I said, yeah, I'll come alone. He said, come on. <laughs> and when I got there, he was very blunt, didn't shake my hand, made no attempt to be courteous. Uh, but he said, why did white people vote for you? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, you in Congress. Said, Your district was majority white. Why did white people vote for you? And I said, you know, they realized we probably have to learn to get along together. And I had worked with them on other things, so they figured I'd be a good representative. And he just said, mm. <laughs> the next question, how much intermarriage you have in Atlanta? I said, we have, we have some, but not much. See, And then he grunted again, and then he said, how long you think we have before the bloodbaths? And I said, what bloodbath? I said, I don't see any bloodbath coming here. And he said, he got very angry. Surely these black people are going to rise up someday and kill us all. And that was his fear. And I said, well, that's the reason President Carter asked me to come. Because he grew up in an area in Georgia that was 80% black. And he learned to live and uh, get along. And we we do fairly well in Georgia. And I said, but we haven't had any killings. Uh, and uh, I said, I'm, I, I know most of the African leaders. I haven't met Mandela, but I know uh, Desmond Tutu and I know Oliver Tambo and I met uh, Robert Mugabe, and uh, I said, I haven't heard a single African leader talk about, uh, you know, a bloodbath. I said, they want a legitimate democracy, one man, one vote. And I said, President Carter sent me to tell you that if you're interested in that, he'd personally be willing to help you come to some reconciliation uh, and learn to live together in a, a democratic society. And he stood up, and I stood up and I walked out. Uh, but that's where we set the tone for what happened over the next few years, where we did get Mandela out of jail. It was mostly, though, Nigeria that cut off their oil supply. So I came back to Atlanta only to be met by Maynard Jackson, who was um, ending his term. Mm-hmm. He was your predecessor as mayor. As mayor. And he said, the white folks don't like what we've been doing. They don't like affirmative action. Uh, we built this airport. We're doing very well. But now they think that uh, a black mayor's means that there's going to be no more investment in the city. And we need you to run for mayor. Well, 
I wasn't interested, but I couldn't say no, especially after a nice little old lady by the name of uh, Miss Susie Laborde, who was in her 80s, and she walked in the meeting with a cane, and she shook it in my face, and she said, look here, boy, when you came here, you wasn't nothing, and we done <laughs> made you somebody, and now we need you, and you ain't got time to be the mayor? We done wasted our time on you. <laughs> and she called me out and walked out and slammed the door. And there was nothing I could do but to run for mayor. Uh, because I was on the banking committee and the rules committee. Uh, we got along very well. Bill Coleman, who was former president of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, was the secretary of transportation. Uh, and and um, we had to move the airport. We had to build the airport in the middle of what used to be an expressway. That meant we had to tear up the airport to keep it there. And uh, I got involved with uh, Senator Talmadge, who lives down there, and we were able to negotiate that, move the airport, and. We didn't have enough federal money to build an airport. And uh, a fellow came to see me in Washington uh, from Wall Street, uh, Bill Holland. He's still alive. And he said, you know, if you and Maynard want to build an airport, uh, I can show you how to get the money from Wall Street. You don't have to go to uh to Washington, to the Congress. And so we began working with Wall Street. And that that led to what I think is unique about Atlanta that most Atlantans and even Morehouse men don't understand. That nothing from that time on, from 1981, 79, 80, uh, all the money we've used to build this city has come from Wall Street. Um, and it's what I call public purpose capitalism. We define the public purpose. We got an agreement on it from all of the stakeholders. And then we went to Wall Street with a, a list where it was Delta, Eastern, United, American, you know, Southwest, wasn't Southwest back then, but then the concessions, the parking lot, and everybody was on the tombstone, they called it, and the city signed at the bottom. And everybody would have to go bankrupt before the city got to play. <laughs> so uh, if, if you put together a good deal that you can sell tax-exempt municipal bonds on Wall Street, you don't need to go to the federal government for everything you need. And every mayor we've had uh, has put close to a half a billion dollars into that airport. And that would be uh, Maynard, uh, then me, and then uh, Maynard came back again, uh, and then Shirley Franklin and Bill Campbell, uh, and uh, Kasim Reed. And... We've gotten about a half a billion dollars 
that we've invested in the airport under every mayor we've had. And, um, and it hadn't cost the taxpayers anything because the bonds are paid off by the airport. So do you think that that's, that was one of your biggest accomplishments? Well, it was the, the biggest accomplishment of any city in the world. Right. <laughs> Facilitating that relationship and, with Wall Street. No, and, and uh, because we also sold Atlanta to the world. We brought the Olympics here. We raised $2.5 billion privately. No Wall Street money, bank, private money. And 41% of it went to minority uh, communities. Well, minority contractors. See? So everything we did, we started out with 25% of the airport funds going to minorities. We, I raised it to 35 and then 40%. And then... By the time it got to Kasim, it was 50-50. And that airport during my time um, generated a billion dollars a year, uh, over a billion dollars a year, uh, and a million jobs. See, uh, so that's the largest economic engine in the Southeast. And it doesn't cost the taxpayers any money. And that's the reason I want, I got upset in a, in a board meeting one time when somebody said that they wanted Morehouse to be the Harvard of the South. And I said, what the hell for? <laughs> <laughs> I said, Harvard gave us, you know, uh, the Cold War and uh, uh, the war in Vietnam and everything else. I said, Morehouse has given us Martin Luther King and a peaceful universe. Jimmy Carter. First Morehouse man to become president. Morehouse <laughs> man. Who, he's the only president, I think, there where no American soldier killed anybody in his time, nor did any American soldier get killed in battle. See, and I said, Morehouse is an institute of peace and prosperity. See, and... We ought to be majoring in what I've called public purpose capitalism. See? And you design projects that pay for themselves. See? And, um, and there's, there's, there's so much money in this world that they don't know what to do with it. And so I went around the world inviting people to come to Atlanta. And I said, look, if you come to Atlanta, your money will be safe. See, we're honest. We're not going no kickbacks. You don't have to pay anybody under the table. See, and third, it's going to be efficient. See, it will be on time and within budget, and that means it's going to be profitable. See, well, the years I was mayor, seventy billion dollars worth of foreign direct investment came in. 1,100 companies moved here. See? And we've sort of kept that going. Mm-hmm. And because we plugged in to the world money supply. Uh, and a lot, of, even now, a lot of the work that I'm trying to do, we're trying to get Dutch money, so the Canadian money, 
<laughs> money from around the world Everywhere. where they have money that they need to invest. And we've convinced a lot of people. Well, the Dutch put a billion and a half dollars into Atlanta during the time I was mayor. And, um, and they have more money that they need to invest. And then not many places in the world where you can put billions of dollars and it will be safe, honest, efficient, and profitable. The world is just too disrupted right now. And so selling Atlanta and selling the United States uh, on economics that came out of Morehouse instead of Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Well, thank you again for listening to this edition of the More Conversations podcast. And I'm your host, Alexander Hurley, and thanks for listening.